from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, we're going to pick up where we left off last time. And uh, we'll read from verse 35. So 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 35. If you want to read along with me at your table, you'll find that on page 1143, 1143 in that uh, wine-colored, what color shall we call those? Burgundy, thank you. So I was close when I said wine, huh? Burgundy, we'll call it the Burgundy Bible. Otherwise known as the printed expression of God's word. Here we go. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is, in one, is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is, one, there is the one glory of the sun and one glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a living, a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I will tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperish the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. 
wow. Sometimes I get up here and I read a passage like that and I think, well, just go sit down. What more could you say? It says it fine on its own, and yet I will try for whatever benefit God sees to glean from this to expound upon it a little bit. We're picking up where we left off last week. As you recall, last week we talked about the nature of the resurrection. We talked about how our bodies are going to be physically raised from the grave, from death. That we're not just looking forward to a sort of ethereal, ghost-like existence after we die, but actually a physical resurrection. And that in itself is exciting news that we were glad to hear last week, but it goes further than that. It really does. And what I see coming is very exciting to me. And so we agreed that, yeah, a lot of people believe that there's something more after you die, but, you know, they don't necessarily believe as we Christians do. And uh, what we do know for sure is that when we die, we go to a place Jesus referred to as paradise, and we exist in some spiritual form where we are known and can know others, and yet it's not complete. It's not the end of the plan. And so we're going to flesh that out a little bit more in today's reading. Today, we listen to Paul say, I know what some of you are thinking. How is this going to work? How can the dead be raised? How can the physical person that we once knew be restored to the flesh? How can that be? Well, we're going to do a little bit of talk today that will sound something like science, maybe even a little bit of science fiction. We're going to talk a little bit about things like DNA and atomic structure and all of that. But I think by the time we're done, you'll get a sense of how really majestic our God is in the genius of how things are constructed and reconstructed in perfection. So Paul refers, first of all, to two kinds of existence. Now, I was thinking as I read that to you, how Jesus said the same thing. You might remember that Jesus said that you had to be born of water and of the Spirit. And a lot of Christians will interpret that to mean that you have to be baptized as though it's as simple as that. And that is not a criticism of baptism, but rather me saying that Jesus was making a broader point. What he was saying was, this is exactly what you heard Paul say just now, that you will be born of the flesh. And by water and the spirit, what Jesus is referring to is the water of the womb. He's referring to something that every expectant mother or experienced mother understands, that with the coming of the waters of the womb comes the birth of the child. It's a physical process of being born into this life. And so when he says you have to be born of water in the spirit, he's talking about, and, and that wouldn't make sense if it wasn't for the next thing Jesus says in that same quote, which is from John, by the way, that he says that flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. So Jesus is associating the flesh giving birth to flesh with born of water. And he says spirit giving birth to spirit as he says, being born of the Spirit. And so what he's saying is the same thing Paul is saying, that you have an existence that begins with your physical birth. With your arrival on this planet, as you enter into the flesh that we know in this life, but then you're born again of the Spirit. 
And this birth is a life that goes beyond the flesh. And this is the very heart and soul of the matter that we are discussing these weeks about resurrection. And so the soul saved by God's grace is preserved for a day when it will be restored to the body. Not only restored in the flesh, but made new and perfected in the flesh. And what Paul has said to us is basically, if you're born into this resurrected form, you're being equipped for a resurrected form of creation. In other words, God is not only at the trumpet blast, that's when Jesus returns, going to reclaim you and reshape you and remake you in the resurrected form, but all of creation is resurrected and reformed and reclaimed. In other words, Eden is the way things will reset to. It'll be like it was in the days of Eden. And the fact is, is we can no longer exist in that Edenic, perfected, resurrected world than Adam and Eve could, which is why they had to be kicked out and why there were guardians placed at the gates. And so Paul is just tying together everything he understood and knew as his Bible, what we would call the Old Testament. He's just pulling it all together. And Paul is by far one of the most rational thinkers. And his arguments are so logical and well thought out that you could learn a lot just by reading Paul's words and then figuring out how to make your case. All of you kids who are going to go to college or maybe you're in advanced classes in high school and you have to write a term paper or something, read Paul because that's what you're expected to do when you write a thesis statement and then argue for it. If you get a doctorate someday, you're gonna have to argue your doctoral thesis and it's gonna have to be as good as this And this has convinced a lot of people for thousands of generations. So just a little word to the wise there. So someone says, okay, Paul, I'm with you. There is a resurrection coming, but how does that work? Well, let me tap into a little bit of science fiction for a minute. Some of you have seen, like me, all the versions of Jurassic Park and maybe even read the book. Michael Crichton was really a brilliant science fiction writer And great science fiction always takes a lot of science fact and incorporates it into things that are probable and possible, plausible, but not necessarily happening anytime soon. And so he has taken real science and combined it with imagined science. And he's found a way in this story about dinosaurs to extract from the blood consumed by an insect who just happened to get caught in amber and using the DNA extracted from that blood sample and combining it with some invented science to recreate Tyrannosaurus rex, my personal favorite dinosaur. Although I can't say why, it just grew up that way. But what have we seen then? Something that does not exist being restored and recreated by extracting invisible to the naked eye hidden remnants of the very essence of the creature. 
Let's put it another way for a minute. If I take firewood today and put it in my fireplace and I light a fire, my kids will tell you because I was a Boy Scout and a firefighter that there's a triangle. It's called the fire triangle. You have to have heat, fuel, and air. If all three of those things are present, pretty soon that log is going to reduce to ash and smoke. And by the way, the reason you need to get low and get out of your house if it's on fire is because the smoke is filled with particles that were wood or whatever else is on fire. And those particles are not meant to be consumed in your lungs. So just a little side uh, PSA there for you. Get out, stay low, learn not to burn. Did, did I ever tell you that I used to teach every year for several years, I taught all the kids in the local grade school the annual fire safety thing. I, I was firefighter Dan in that moment. So I just sort of channeled him for a second there. If, however, I burn that fire up and all that's left is ash and a little bit of smoke wisping out of my chimney, then where's the tree that it came from? Well, in a very literal and theoretical sense, it's still there. Science informs us that the atomic nature of everything that is, is such that it never goes away. Matter never goes away, it changes its form. And so the form of that tree has been reduced systematically to firewood and now ash and smoke, but the essence is still there. And so what we're talking about from a scientific point of view is the existence of matter and the fact that it never goes away. It turns into energy and turns into various other forms of, of existence. But in a theoretical sense, what we're saying isn't that different from what we say when we take Holy Communion, that, that the, the elements become more than what they appear to be. And so we see something sacred and we talk about the substance as being consubstantial or more than what they seem to be. In the Catholic tradition, they would call it transubstantiation, meaning that it is believed that in the Eucharistic prayer that the elements have not changed in their outward appearance, but they have changed in their invisible essence. So this whole idea that I'm talking about is not just science fiction, but it's part of the very essence of what we believe about things like the resurrection. It's what the Bible says. Paul is describing in his own terms something that we know better simply because of the times we're living in. He talks about seeds and uh, plants and, and animals and their various unique identities at a subatomic level. He's talking about the strands of DNA that climb that little ladder that makes us who we are and makes things what they are. And it reveals to us that it is the genius of our God. It's the majestic genius of our creator to have created all things from the same basic building blocks. I don't understand why more scientists aren't true believers, except this. And this is a commentary, but it's also, I think, a time where it needs to be heard. Science is not a religion. Science is a process. Science is a process of inquiry and discovery. Science is a process of using existing knowledge, observations, theories, tests, more theories, more tests, and conclusions. 
That's what science is. It's not a religion. And yet, if you look at our culture, especially these last couple of years, we treat it like a religion. We argue against the faith of Christians, for example, in favor of faith in science, and both at that point become religions. But in reality, science at its very best is a process that we also apply when we do Bible study together in small groups, when we pray together, when we talk about life and the pursuit of personal holiness, we're doing a process of inquiry, theory, questions, answers, tests, discoveries, and these pieces of knowledge build to a greater sense of comprehension and apprehension. So Paul is talking from terms that are not as sophisticated as ours, but he's saying, I get it. You want to know how God could possibly take that person who died at sea, let's say, and whose body descended to great depths, or perhaps because of the nature of their death or the nature of the decay, there's nothing left that we can see. And you're saying to me that one day God will call to Jesus and say, go get him, and Jesus will blow his horn, he'll shout, and then all of those people will rise again? Those people will be resurrected? And the answer is yes. Because the great majestic genius who created all of it with the word of his mouth and the idea in his mind, the word with a capital W, the heart and mind of God, will speak into existence again everything that was already created. Because the God who created it, though invisible to us, has the capacity to recreate it, even though it is in existence right now in invisible forms whatever it is. And so if it's the remains of someone who died in faith, or whether it's the remains of the firewood, or whether it's the remains of the dinosaur, it doesn't matter. If God wishes it to resurrect, the elements are there. Because the God who knows the number of hairs on your head also knows the numbering of every atom that used to be you, that is you. Not only that, as Paul says, that's just the physical nature. He also is well acquainted with your spiritual nature. And so those two will reconnect one day at the day of resurrection, not only to recreate you in a new and better form like Jesus has already demonstrated in his resurrection, but a world that is new and better. So that leaves... Oh, yeah, and in a twinkling of an eye, by the way. I heard a guy say a long time ago, he says, you know, actually, you can measure the twinkling of an eye. I think it'll actually be faster than that. <laughs> Just a little interesting sidelight from, guess what? From scientific discovery. You can't measure how fast this is going to happen. It's going to happen that fast. So the last question then is, all right, now I believe there's going to be a resurrection, and I even believe that God can make what appears to be nothing into something again, because God has created it at such an invisibly impossible and improbable subatomic level that God still has everything God originally made so that God can do it again. I believe you, but here's the question I really want to know, Pastor Dan. Here's the question Pastor Dan wants to know. When I'm resurrected, will I have hair again? 
I don't know. Will I be fit and slim and trim? Will I be young and healthy? Will I be old? Will I be a child? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. There's a world of difference between the biblical Christian view of things and the flesh and blood view of things, which some scholars would refer to as the Greco-Roman view. Think about Greek art, for example. Roman art, for example. What is it all about? The ideal body, right? The ideal flesh. It's, a, it's all around how beautiful the body is at its very best. And what we all know is that the most beautiful, the most handsome person that ever walked the earth usually doesn't look that way without a lot of outside assistance from makeup and various other things. But at the end of the day, it only lasts for a little while. It only lasts for a little while. The rest of the time, we're either young and gangly and weird and physically malformed into something that goes from childhood to adulthood. And, and then we're in this process of decline where the hair goes, the waistline goes, and it's all. So, so how? How can the resurrection body be better? How can the resurrection creation be better? Well, we're looking at things through the world's lens instead of our biblical Christian lens. You will find that couples who have been married for many, many years, who are deeply in love with each other, who have built a life together, when they look at each other, they still see the beauty. They still see that handsome stud they married. They still see what isn't physically present to those outside that relationship, but they see it. I know people through my Christian worldview and my existence in, in this role as pastor who are not all physical perfection in the eyes of the world and, you know, watch the Olympics today to see what I mean, but they're beautiful. They're stunning because their spirits are so Christ-like. Because I do not see their body as much as I see their eternal nature. And perhaps even sometimes you see that when you look at me. And this is a hint. This is a sign. We use the word sign a lot in religion because signs are, are they're like our visit to the communion table. They are physical in nature, but they are also indications of something greater. That's why we call them sacraments. And, and so signs are a way of looking at something that we recognize, but seeing in it an indication of something that we can't fully grasp, which is eternal. And so we look at signs of way, the way things will be in this resurrected world that Christ will rule at the time when he comes again. And we can see the signs now. We hear them in the music that comes from our praise band. We, we see them in the artwork that is created oftentimes by people who do not have a healthy relationship with God, who are not professing Christians. And yet God, despite that, 
lets them be an expression of God's true nature. They get to witness to that God-like nature within them, even though they have not yet embraced it. And so God has opened his treasure trove of knowledge and amazing majestic genius to a world that doesn't necessarily want it. To an artist who will take credit for what God has done through them through a doctor or a surgeon who has taken credit for what God has done through them, through an engineer who would take credit for what God has done through them. And yet all of these things, things that we attribute to human genius, they are signs of God's great majestic genius. When we ourselves find that we have done, said, or been more than we thought we were capable of. We are, in that instant, a sign of God's nature in us. Tethered somewhat, limited somewhat by this flesh, being oppressed by almost something like gravity that is basically sin and evil in the world. And yet despite sin and evil in the world, today you might go outside and hear the bird song, see the blue sky, see a crocus prying, prying its way up through the soil. You, you might see on the best day of your life the perfect beach or the perfect mountaintop or the perfect desert or the perfect backyard and in that moment say this is good that's what God said when it was perfect and it feels pretty good to you imperfect so can you realize in that moment that it is a sign of what God intends to do perfectly at this perfect time known only to God when Christ will shout and we will be changed faster than a twinkling eye. Let us pray. Well, God, thank you for inspiring us with this hope and joy that is your eternal glory and all that you have created. Thank you, Lord, for a promise that goes beyond this weighty flesh existence and this world of sin and death. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a hope that is so extraordinary that we can hardly imagine it, but thank you, God, for that hope. We will cling to it in our darkest hour. And when we're happy and full of joy and laughter, singing and praising and looking at all the beauty of the earth, we'll recognize that this is only a sign of things to come. And we'll give you all the praise and glory you deserve for things seen and unseen. Amen. Amen.